Good morning. Thanks, Ben, for that song. Pretty cool uh, subject matter. Yeah, like Peter said, really love Jesus here at this church. Hopefully you see that and you hear that every day uh, or every Sunday when you come here. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is actually my first uh, Sunday preaching as, as a pastor. I started September 1st, and I'm very excited to, to be up here for you. Um, we started the church seven years ago, so we're a church plant that's seven years old. Um, and one of the other founding pastors, along with Chris, who you saw this morning, was uh, Michael Devro. And uh, by God's grace, we're, we're very thankful that we're sending him and his wife to Brooklyn, New York, to uh, plant a church, to start a new church there in Brooklyn. So um, God called him and his family uh, there, and so I'm uh, very thankful to be called to, to be a vocational pastor here. So this is my first sermon as, as a pastor of High Wealth Church, and I'm excited to be here. Welcome again, especially if you're a visitor here at our church. Um, we're a church, by God's grace, full of visitors every Sunday, uh, 10 to 20 new people. Check out our church. And uh, if, that's, if that's you, uh, we really want to welcome you. Um, that's why we do things in our service, um, like the communication cards. That's why we have people greeting you at the door, why we have uh, beverages and food out there in between services, so that you feel welcomed. We want to welcome people, new people, uh, people who are just checking out uh, Christianity and Jesus, or maybe people who are just new to our church. We want to welcome you, uh, just like Christ welcomed us um, on the cross. So again, welcome. Uh, I, like I said, I am the community life pastor here at Hiawatha Church. I'm married to Amy and uh, the father of Charlie. There's a picture of, of us up there. Just in case you're wondering, I don't always pin flowers to my clothes, uh, but that, that is a picture from us from last week where we're all in a wedding. But um, my son does look adorable like that <laughs> any day. So, so that's us. Uh, right now we're in a series in the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples, um, and he uh, wrote about Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And it's the first book of the New Testament. We're right now in a mini-series within the book of Matthew, where especially Jesus and also his disciples, they are declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. And so we're seeing especially Jesus, but also his disciples, both in word, declaring uh, that the kingdom of God is near and that the, the, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection uh, for us on our behalf is coming. We also see his disciples doing that too. And then they're backing it up and uh, showing it off through deeds. So through um, forgiveness of sin, Jesus is telling people he's forgiving their sins. We're seeing people uh, being healed of diseases. We're seeing demons cast out of people as well. So in today's passage, the religious leaders of the day are going to come to Jesus and they're going to demand a sign from him. And Jesus is going to instead, uh, instead of actually doing a sign, he's going to point back to a, a prophet in the Old Testament named Jonah and he's going, he's going to say that, that that is the sign that he's going to give them. If you're brand new to the Bible, Jonah, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. We're going to uh, talk more about him today. We're going to hear his story. He's actually not a, a, a fish but um, that's a big, big part of the story. So we're going to get to that in just a little bit. So today's passage is in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 45. If you have a Bible in the pews, you can turn to that. Uh, this passage is also in our worship folders and will be up here on the screen. Matthew 12, 
starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it teaches us about you and about your son and about your spirit. We thank you that we do not have to guess at who you are, but that we can know who you are through your word and through the gospel. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would use me despite my flaws, my sin, my weakness. Pray, God, that you would open our hearts this morning. Spirit, the same, uh, you, are the, you are the spirit that wrote these words. We pray that you would reveal the truth behind them to us. You'd move in our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, convict us of sin and lies that we're believing. We pray that you would give us faith. Give us faith. Pray this all in, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's get started. First verse, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, so these are the scribes and Pharisees are the, the religious rulers of the day, answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And so this might be a question that you've asked in, in your past. Maybe it's something you still wrestle with sometimes. Or it's probably something you've heard from, from unbelievers before, is that they, they just want to see a sign from God, and then they will believe. Uh, I was watching a debate between two comedians. One was a Christian, and one was an atheist. And it was pretty lighthearted, but they're debating back and forth about the existence of God and about Christianity and Jesus. And, and the atheist said, well, I'd believe in God. All he has to do is just rip back the ceiling, poke his head in, and say, hi, I'm God. Then I'd believe. And so even though... There's a joke, and, and he is a comedian. That's, that's a, a very popular belief that people have, or, or a struggle that they have, that they don't think that there is a sign out there that God does exist. Or they think that they need to have a sign in order to believe. They think that their doubt and their unbelief uh, is so insurmountable that they need some type of sign in order to believe. Or it might even be, just, it might even be something that we struggle with. We have times when we don't believe what the Bible says about us. Um, maybe we struggle with some of the, the miracles in the Bible or, or some of the hard teachings that Jesus has. And we think, well, if God would just speak to me, if God would just show me a sign, then I would believe. So it could be, if God would give me a sign, then I would believe. Or it could be the inverse. 
because God has not given me a sign, that is why I'm choosing not to believe. A lot of agnostics would say, uh, maybe there's a God. We just, we just can't really know because there's no signs. There's no proof to show that God does exist. And so there's, there's this lie out there, a lie that we sometimes believe as Christians, a lie that the unbelieving world believes. And the lie is that uh, we're tempted, we're very often tempted to believe that if we or others just had a sign, then we'd have faith. Some type of supernatural sign, some type of miraculous sign. But that's actually not true. We'll get, to, we'll get to the answer to this lie in just a second. I have a friend who grew up in a Catholic church and then as, as an adult uh, wandered, didn't really, didn't really have a faith, always struggled with disbelief. Uh, and he's a friend also of our, of our pastor, Chris. And for, for years, they had discussions about Christianity and faith and Jesus. And uh, so they had three, three plus years of these kind of conversations. And they often would go to, to Twins games together just to hang out, to have fun, to, to discuss some of these matters. And uh, a few years ago, they went to one of these Twins games, and they were, at, they were talking about Jesus and about Christianity and about faith, and even got to, to this same topic, talking about signs talking about, well, it'd be so much easier to believe if, like, God was up there on a cloud and, and we could see him. You know, why, why, is, why does it seem like he's so hidden from us? Why can't, why can't we believe? Um, and Chris was trying to talk him through, you know, the Bible is a great sign. We don't uh, need miraculous signs in order to believe. And this friend goes, okay, well, if Michael Kadire, who's a former twin, if Michael Kadire goes up to bat, if he hits a home run in this next pitch, I'll believe. And so if you know anything about baseball, you know that there's not too many home runs in every game. You know that uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of pitches during a game. And this guy, even though he's a pretty decent player, that year only had like four home runs up to this time. So by this friend saying, if, if, if Michael Kadire hits a home run on this next pitch, then I'll believe. He was pretty much saying, God, you have to make something almost supernatural, almost miraculous to, ha- to happen before I'll believe. Well, God is a, is a humorous God, and in the next pitch, the ball went in, into the outfield seats, and there was a home run. So there was some silence right after that. <laughs> and uh, here's a quote from my friend. I thought a home run would be enough. It wasn't, which leads me to believe that most likely no sign will ever be enough. Strange how the mind works. One second, a home run will do, and the next, it's not enough. Within minutes of the home run, I was already doubting and trying to find ways to explain the coincidence. My sign was manifested, yet my lack of faith remained. I feel that the biggest sign, though, was the consistency of the gospel. This, this friend of mine is now a believer. I feel that the biggest sign, though, not, not even this home run, the biggest sign though, was the consistency of the gospel and the messengers that God had conveyed to me. Hiawatha was a large part of that. So praise God that this man is now saved and that he is uh, a believer. He told me that often his faith still is pretty weak and that it is small, but he still has faith. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. But with him, it wasn't a miraculous sign. It wasn't a home run in a very, very unlikely time, but that it was the gospel and the consistency of who Jesus was and what he did on the cross, and, and using our body of believers here to remind him of that. That was the sign that he needed in order to believe. 
And so the answer to the lie, the lie that if we just had a sign, then we'd believe, the truth is that a miraculous sign doesn't guarantee faith. And that the gospel, the gospel, Jesus' life and death on the cross for us and his resurrection, that is all we need for belief. And that's the sign that Jesus gives us. So not only experience, which many of you have maybe had similar experiences in your life, but also the Bible teaches us the same truth too. In Luke, Jesus tells a story that illustrates that even miraculous signs do not guarantee faith. So in Luke, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and, and a poor man who, who lived at this rich man's gates. This uh, poor man's name was Lazarus, and he, he begged at the gates of this rich man's house. Um, later on, both of them died, and uh, the poor man, the beggar, uh, because of his faith, uh, went to heaven, and Abraham, in this picture, or in this story, is in heaven with this, uh, with this man, Lazarus. And then the rich man, because of his unrepentant sin and his disbelief, is in hell. And the rich man uh, looks up to, to Abraham, and this is the conversation that they have. And he said, so the, the rich man who's in hell, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, talking to Abraham, to send him, talking about uh, Lazarus, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they all come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, So the rich man. Then the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham responded to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Abraham is saying here, if, if they don't believe the word of God, if they don't believe the Bible, then no miraculous sign is going to bring faith, true and lasting faith. Our sinful nature, just like with my friend, our sinful nature is always, always going to find a way to explain it away, to turn an opportunity of, of a sign to faith, instead turning it into doubt and trying to explain it away. So highlight the church, this is for us. Take heart, be encouraged that we have been given the greatest sign, the gospel. We have been given the best sign imaginable, Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the only sign that Jesus gives these people and gives us. And he tells us that, that is the only sign that we need. So as we wrestle with doubt and disbelief throughout our lives, as we talk to people who are not believers yet and who have these great doubts, we can have confidence and we can be encouraged that Jesus tells us that his gospel, his death and resurrection on our behalf, that's the greatest sign and that's all that they need. Not to say that the scripture and, and other things don't help and don't also encourage, but the only sign we do need for faith, for, for true saving faith, is the gospel. But we need, we need to be careful though right now that we don't start thinking ourselves better than these religious rulers who immediately disbelieved Jesus and tried to trap him. Because even though, even though if we're a Christian, we do have faith, our faith is still given to us as a gift. So this keeps us from, from looking down on people who don't have faith, on, on these religious leaders, as we remember that even our faith, the faith that we do have, even if it's small, was still given to us as a gift. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we see that God assigns faith, a measure of faith, so different amounts of faith to different people. And if you're one of these people who God has, has graciously gifted lots and lots of faith, and it's really easy for you to believe and to trust in God, then praise him for that, because that's, that's not the same for everyone. And, and use that gift of faith to encourage, to encourage your, your community group, to encourage uh, your church, your family in that. Also in Ephesians 2, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So we're saved not by, by believing really hard or by figuring out uh, some complex mystery about, about who God is, but we're saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So even when we're, we're compared with uh, these religious leaders who disbelieve Jesus, and we, we do believe, if that's the case, we're not even, we don't even boast about that. We turn to God and we say, thank you for the faith that you have given me that I believe, whereas other people have not believed. So don't be discouraged or feel hopeless if faith doesn't come easy to you, if belief is tough for you. Because even a small amount of faith, even the tiniest, the Bible talks about a mustard seed of faith is still enough for salvation. A mustard seed is a tiny, tiny little seed there's a really cool story in the book of Mark where Jesus uh, is confronted with this man who has a son who is possessed by a demon. And this, de this demon is so evil and so violent that, it, that this demon throws the son into water to try to drown him, throws the son into the fire to try to burn him. And this father who has seen this for years, his heart is just broken because his, his son that he loves so much is being tormented. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, please, please, will you heal my son? And Jesus asks him, well, do you believe? Do you believe that I can do this? Because you're, you're coming to me and asking for, for healing for your son. And this is the man's response. I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And so he believes that Jesus is who he says he is. He believes in the person of Jesus, but still has some disbelief, still has some doubt in his mind that Jesus will do or can do what he says he will do. And this man is not rebuked by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say to this man, well, you have some disbelief, so sorry, I'm not going to heal. But I pray, I pray that this is a prayer that we pray often, each one of us. I believe Jesus, but help me in my unbelief. And so you don't have to have it all figured out to follow Jesus. You don't have to have every single answer. You don't have to have this book memorized or, or trust every single thing in it in order to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It is the object of our faith. It's who we put our faith in. It's faith in Jesus Christ. That's what matters for salvation, not the amount of faith that you have. So even a tiny mustard seed of faith is still enough. And so when you come to our church or when you come to any type of gathering we have or our community groups, you don't have to put on a face when you're here at, at Hiawatha. You don't have to come in acting like you have everything together or, or hiding the doubts and the disbelief that you might have in, in certain aspects. Don't stay there. Don't wallow in your doubt and disbelief and think that it's okay because it's, it's covered by, by God's grace. But it is okay if you do have doubt and disbelief at times. But let this be, let this be 
the prayer that you pray often. And don't stay in that disbelief. Just pray to Jesus, I believe, I believe in you, but help me in my unbelief. I still have unbelief. You are the giver of faith. You are the giver of belief. Give me more, God. So now back to our passage. So how, did, how does Jesus respond to these religious rulers who, who tell him, Jesus, we want to see a sign. Teacher, give us a sign. Verse 39, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So right now you might be thinking, whoa, Jesus, chill. They're just asking you a question. They, don't want, they just want you to validate and show that you really are who you say you are, right? Well, not exactly. We do know that, that Jesus knew their thoughts and their motives. So, so why is Jesus calling uh, these religious rulers and then the, the disbelieving generation around them? Why does Jesus call them evil? Why does Jesus call them adulterous? We saw just a few weeks ago, earlier in uh, Matthew 20, a sermon I preached uh, just a few weeks ago, that Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Why did he denounce these cities? Because they did not repent. And so remember, Jesus did all kinds of miracles and all kinds of signs in these cities. He healed people of all different kinds of handicaps and diseases. He cast out demons out of people, and he even raised the dead. He even raised the dead, and they still didn't believe. And so we see that's why Jesus is pronouncing woes on them. They did not believe. They did not repent of their sin. We're going to see in a couple weeks in Matthew 16, uh, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so these are other, other religious rulers, came, and to test him, they asked him to show a sign from heaven. So here in Matthew 16, we see their motives behind asking for a sign. It isn't because they, have, because they have doubts or a little bit of disbelief and they really want to see if Jesus is who he says he is. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him in trouble. They're trying to trick him. And so Jesus doesn't answer them by giving them a sign. He doesn't answer by giving them what they want. But instead, he says, the sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. So kind of back to the title of our sermon. So what exactly is the sign of Jonah? So Jonah, really fantastic book. It's, uh, Jonah is a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, the book has four chapters. Chris preached on it uh, a while back. Really, really great book in the Bible that foreshadows and points to Jesus and what Jesus was going to do and how Jesus is a greater Jonah. And even though the Israelites and the Jews looked back to Jonah as, as a great man and a hero of the faith, Jesus is saying, I am going to do even greater things than that. Jonah is just foreshadowing and previewing what I'm going to do on an even greater level. It's a fantastic book where we see God uh, loving people and pursuing people, changing their hearts, being patient with them, saving them, and then after that, sending them out to preach uh, belief and repentance. So check that out. It's on our website. I'd really encourage you, if you're interested in that, it is a really great book. So very briefly, we're going to summarize and see who Jonah was and, and what is Jesus talking about here with uh, the sign of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for, the e for their evil 
has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Then he, Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Isn't that a fun word to say? Tempestuous. Uh, he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. That's a very abbreviated uh, summary of, of what's going on in Jonah. So back in Matthew, Jesus clarifies now, and he says exactly what the sign of Jonah is. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we see that Jonah's story, especially this part, as Jesus is talking about, foreshadows and points to Christ and his death and his resurrection. So it's, it's as if Jesus is telling these religious rulers, you want a sign? Really? Okay, well, remember Jonah? Remember this great prophet, this great hero of the faith? That's what I'm going to do, but in even bigger and greater and better way. So just as no one expected Jonah to emerge from this fish, no one expected Jesus to emerge from the grave days later. Just as Jonah's sign showed the people of Nineveh that he was from God, Christ's resurrection will demonstrate, will demonstrate, it's about to happen, Christ's resurrection will demonstrate to the world that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. Jesus continues in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So this would be really embarrassing and a hard teaching for, uh, for these religious leaders, these Jewish religious leaders, 
Jesus is saying that these Gentiles, these people that were so far away from God, so evil and wicked, that God was going to destroy them, going to destroy their whole city. That's how evil they were. Now, these same people on the day of judgment are going to look at this generation, so the religious leaders and their followers, and condemn them because they did not have faith and repentance. And this evil, wicked, the epitome of, of an evil city in the Old Testament, these people actually did turn from their faith and believe. So Hiawatha, we are on this side of the cross and the resurrection. So how much more should we believe? So if Jesus is telling these religious rulers, I'm just telling you that I'm going to do something greater than what you saw with Jonah. And many believed. And Jesus said, that, that is the sign I'm going to give you. That's enough for belief. How much more should we believe? We are on this side of the gospel. We can look back and we can see exactly how the sign of Jonah played out. We can see how Christ died on the cross in our place for our sins and how he conquered our enemies of sin and death and resurrected from the grave never to die again. How much more should we believe? And so to misquote a, a famous line from Spider-Man, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. So now on this side of the cross, we have the Bible, we have the gospel. We cannot go on living like we don't, like we don't know it. We, cannot, we, have, we don't have an excuse anymore. Now in verse 42, Jesus gives them another comparison of how he is greater, greater than even one of Israel's greatest kings, Solomon. So the queen of the south, verse 42, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So this was another huge ouch, even, even more than uh, the city of Nineveh, because this is not only a Gentile, so not a Jew, but also a woman and in their eyes, this would have been a huge, a huge uh, kick in the stomach. So this lady will rise up, the queen of the south, in the Old Testament she's called the Queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So in the Old Testament, Solomon was one of the, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. His, his wisdom... Was, was beyond anyone else's. He had huge wealth. And, and uh, a person far, far away, a queen from the south, heard about this and came and marveled at who this great king was. And Jesus is saying, I am an even greater king than this person. So if this Gentile woman that was far, far away from the presence of, the God, presence of God heard about Solomon and came, how much more should people come and look at me and marvel at what I'm about to do? So we've seen all throughout Matthew, and we're going to continue to see it, two different responses, two different ways that people respond to Jesus. Some with belief and repentance, and then follow, following him, becoming his disciples, and others who reject him. And as we see in our passage today, they're much worse off afterwards because of that. Jesus continues in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so I've seen it so far. We'll continue to see it that Jesus is both physically and spiritually 
delivering people from the rule and the power and the oppression of Satan and his demons. But for those who see and hear Christ, but don't repent and don't believe and don't follow him, they'll be worse off even than before. They are now without an excuse. So some scholars and theologians look at this passage and think that it's actually a view, a spiritual view, a spiritual reality of what's going on when people reject Christ. So the end of verse 45 again. And the last state of that person, so after hearing and seeing Jesus, but still choosing to reject him, the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. All right, so in conclusion, how does this pertain to us today? Number one, something greater than Jonah and Solomon is here. The gospel is our greatest sign. It is so much greater than Jonah's salvation and Solomon's wisdom. So the religious leaders, they loved Jonah and they loved Solomon. These were great people of the faith of their past that they would hold up and look to. But they're totally missing who Jonah was really pointing to, who Solomon was really pointing to. So it would be just as if you gave a loved one a really, really expensive gift card worth $100, $200, $300, and you gave it to them to their favorite place, favorite store, favorite restaurant, and they were so enamored with the card that they didn't do anything with it. They put the card maybe in a frame and put it on their shelf. Or they looked at the card daily, and they were so excited about the card. You'd be like, what's going on? You're totally missing it. The gift is actually what the card points to, what the card stands for, what the card gets you. Not, not the card itself. And so these religious leaders, and sometimes us, we look at things that point to Jesus in his gospel, and we think that they are the biggest treasure without realizing that they point to something else. They point to Jesus and his death and his resurrection on our behalf for us. So let us not look at the gift card, at the wrapping paper in the box that a gift comes in, but instead marvel at, treasure the gift that we've been given, which is the gospel. Martin Luther, one of the great church fathers and reformers, talks about this in relation to, to doubt and disbelief as well. Creation, human reasoning, spiritual experiences and miracles do not reveal God. Or rather, they reveal something about God. But the kind of knowledge they give puffs up men so that they never get beyond it. God is known through what is contrary. He is known in a hidden way. God's invisible attributes are revealed in suffering and the cross. Glory in shame. Wisdom in folly. Power in weakness. Victory in defeat. God is known through the message of the cross. So if we want to know who God is, if we want to know what God looks like, we look to Jesus' death and resurrection. That is what we point ourselves to when we have disbelief and doubt. That's what we point others to. Apologetics, uh, living a great life, knowing a lot about the Bible, being really good at debating, those are all good tools and they're helpful, but very very seldom do they ever actually bring someone to faith. You can have a great uh, argument with someone or a debate with someone and answer all their questions about faith and the Bible and Christianity and Jesus, and they're still not going to believe. 
very seldom does arguments or someone's great life lived out in front of them, very seldom does it actually bring faith. So what we need to do is we need to point ourselves and point others to the sign of Jonah, to the, to the one sign that Jesus does give us when people ask, I want to believe God. I want to believe Jesus. Show me something so that I'll believe. He says, look at what I'm going to do. Look at my death and resurrection. Number two, there's hope. There's hope for people and for us who have disbelief and who have doubt. Just like Chris preached last week, there's not an unforgivable, or doubt and disbelief is not an unforgivable sin. And it's not something that we're going to be, we are for sure going to be stuck with for the rest of our lives. There is hope for, for us and for others who have doubt and disbelief. Crazy thing in this story is that even some of these hard-hearted, self-righteous religious leaders, that in last week's passage, Jesus called them sons of Satan. So they're so evil, so self-righteous, so prideful, Jesus calls them sons of Satan. He calls them a brood of vipers. Even some of those people do choose to believe. God does give them faith. We see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two people that were these religious leaders that do come to faith. So there is hope. No one, was, no one is without hope. No one is without redemption. Let this be our prayer today at Hiawatha Church, something we pray all the time for each other, for, for the unbelievers that God's put in our life, for ourselves. Pray, I believe, but help my unbelief. Remembering our, our faith, our belief is, is a gift given to us by God. Remember, it's the object of our faith, not the amount of faith. It's having faith in Jesus, not having a huge amount of faith or great faith that counts, that's needed for salvation. So pray. Pray for more faith. Pray for deeper faith. Pray for faith in your life that changes you. And pray for faith in others. This, this truth that, that there is hope for, for disbelief and hope for lack of faith and doubt this truth remind, reminds us and encourages us we don't have to be afraid when, when sharing our faith and sharing the gospel with others in our lives who, who disbelieve. This is maybe the biggest area of disbelief in my life. I believe in, in you know, head knowledge that Jesus can save my non-Christian and my unbelieving friends and coworkers and, and family members and neighbors. But in practicality, I don't share because I'm afraid. I think I have to have better arguments before I start sharing the gospel with them. Because I, I believe an argument is what's going to get them saved. Or I need to, to live out a more perfect life in front of them so that they see Jesus in me, and that's going to make them want to become a Christian. So in, in reality, I'm doubting, I'm disbelieving that the gospel, what Jesus told us today, I'm disbelieving that the gospel is enough for salvation. I'm thinking that they need the gospel plus I need to have really good biblical knowledge and great apologetics and great arguments and a perfect life in front of them. So let that free you up to be able to, to witness and share your faith and preach the gospel to the lost and unbelievers in your life. A fantastic quote from, from Porter Brook, uh, the program and classes that uh, we offer to our people here at Hiawatha. In the book, Living the Cross-Centered Life from Porter Brook, that is the paradox of Christian ministry, a wonderful, glorious message through ordinary, plain, weak messengers. 
If it were any other way, it would confuse the message. If my power and abilities could be compared with the gospel, then people might look to me instead of God. Or if people found me impressive, they might think that being a Christian was about being successful. But if I am weak and faltering, then the focus will be where it belongs, on the power of God. Through the cross, Jesus brought life to others. And Christian discipleship mirrors this. We don't have to be great at apologetics. We don't have to be great at defending the faith or living a sinless, perfect life or knowing every answer to the questions that the Bible brings. But if I am weak and faltering, then the focus will be where it belongs, on the power of God. There is hope for doubt. There is hope for disbelief in our lives and in the unbelievers' lives. I remember... God is the one who saves. God is the one who gifts and gives us faith. And finally, number three, let us respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus like the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South did, who when seeing just a shadow of the gospel, they humbled themselves and just marveled at what they saw. The Queen of the South traveled days and days just to see Solomon and to see his wisdom to see his power and wealth. Let that be us. May we stand in awe and wonder at the death and resurrection of Jesus and through that be led to repentance and belief. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we believe. We believe that Jesus is who he said he is, but we struggle with doubt we struggle with disbelief. We struggle to remember who you are. Father, we, we, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. May that be a prayer we always pray, that we come to you knowing that you are the giver of our faith, knowing that you are the one who saves. God, we ask for more faith. We ask for, for faith in our lives that transforms us. We ask for faith for the unbelievers that you've put in our life, our family members, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers who don't believe. Help us to believe that your gospel is enough. Help kill the lie in our lives that, that makes us think that we have to be perfect or if we're not perfect, that unbelievers in our life will be lost for good. Give us more faith, God. Give us more faith. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.